wondered whether you have what it takes to finish something, to, to go the distance. I, I remember when I was studying theology and I got about halfway through it was. I got about halfway through and I was really counting down the number of courses I got through and the number of courses that were left and thinking, can I finish this? Do I, do I really have what it takes to go the distance here? Or, or maybe, very topically, maybe you're thinking about a Star Wars marathon in the next few weeks. My kids told me it is three weeks to something. I was like, Christmas? It's not three weeks to Christmas. It's three weeks to Star Wars Day. Maybe you're thinking before Star Wars Day, you want to have a Star Wars marathon and get through all six movies and then Jar Jar Binks and you're thinking, do I really have what it takes to get all the way through this? Um, what, about, what about following Jesus? Have you ever wondered whether you have what it takes to follow Jesus all the way to the end? Are you ever worried that you might not make it. If you were with us last Sunday morning, you might have heard Paul, our senior pastor, talking about this question almost. If, says to the Colossians, if you stay, you persevere in the faith. This possibility of people abandoning the faith, of walking away from Christ. And I think many of us will know stories of people for whom this has been the case. Have you ever wondered whether that would be you? Or maybe, maybe you're not a Christian here tonight. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And maybe part of that question for you is, well, if I did choose to pursue Jesus, could I really do that all the way to the end? Could I really stick at it? I think a lot of us wonder sometimes whether we have the strength to go the distance. And the next section of the story of the early church uh, a story that we've been working through in these evening services for most of the last year addresses exactly this. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of the key characters, one of Jesus' first followers, has been on these three massive missionary journeys, stretching around so much of the, 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 the known world at that time. He's coming in his third journey back towards the end. He has exactly this fear for his dear friends these leaders uh, of the church in Ephesus, a place where he spent nearly three years, a church he started. Are they going to finish the mission? Are they going to follow Jesus all the way to the end? Do you think they're going to go the distance? We're going to look tonight at how he speaks to them, how he counsels them with this danger in view, and see what we can learn for ourselves along the way. Now, he's speaking particularly to elders, to leaders within the church but actually there's a great deal of what he says that can apply to all of us wherever we are in our faith journey whatever our role is in the church so if you find Acts 20 with me we'll read together Acts chapter 20 starting at verse 13 I wrote down the page number here it is 1117 in these red bibles Acts chapter 20 going to start at verse 13 starting at verse 13. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. 
The day after that, we crossed over to Samos. And on the following day, we arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church, and when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day, I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Let's uh, pray. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to listen to you, to hear you speak through your word. Lord, please may your truth help us to persevere in following Jesus. Amen. Thinking for a minute there, what is the evacuation procedure? <clears throat> but it was somebody else's alarm. The building is not on fire. So you may remain in your seats. So Paul is leaving 
Uh, he's compelled by the Spirit. He says he's off to Jerusalem, and though he doesn't quite know how it's going to turn out, he's onward to new territories is where he's headed. Right about this stage in his travels, he writes to the church in Rome, and we can find the letter he wrote to the church in Rome in our Bibles as the book of Romans, and there you get to find out a bit more about his plans here. He says, he says it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. That's Romans 15, verse 20. And then he goes on to say in verse 23, there is no more place for me to work in these regions. He's done with the Eastern Med. He's finished. That's where his first three missionary journeys have focused on and circled around. And now he's plotting a course which will take him to Spain. And Spain in these days is basically the edge of the world. It's the the edge of the known world, at least the western extreme of the the Roman Empire. Now, he's not expecting it to be easy, but he is aiming to finish his course, his mission, uh, nonetheless. Actually, he says he's been warned by the Spirit repeatedly that prison and hardships lie ahead. And if you skipped ahead to the next chapter in Acts, you would see two examples of this happening. Verse 4 and verse 8 talk about the way that he's been warned by the Spirit, but whatever uncertainty he has about what's coming, there are some things that he's sure of. He's, he's sure, he says, I know I will never see you again. He's sure he's not going to see these guys again. He's sure there's trouble uh, ahead for them. He's anxious for them and their church. What we're looking at today is his final speech. It's his final exhortation for leaders, his last coaching session, his last um, pep talk for them before he's gone for good. So it's really significant. We get to see right into the heart of Paul what's most important to him. What do you want to impress on people as your last thing? You've got one more chance to tell somebody something. Well, what is it you're going to say? And then a very emotional departure. I mean, it's worthy of a chick flick, isn't it? It's all this hugging and kissing and tears. It's quite awkward, really. Or, or, or it's a reflection of a seriously close fellowship, a sort of very deep version of Christian community. On top of that, the words we're reading here are unusual because in this whole long book of Acts, this is the only time we get to hear somebody speaking specifically to the church to Christians. We hear lots of how we speak to outsiders in different contexts, but this is the only big set of teaching we get for inside the church. So Paul is leaving lands, he's leaving loved leaders. Let's listen to him, see what he has to say. There are are only two commands in the original language in this whole section and they would have actually stood out to the original hearers as, as imperatives, as, as pointed commands. And so they should stand out to us as well. So you want to see what they are? Verse 28, he says, keep watch. That's his first command. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. Pay careful attention. And then the second command is right after that in verse 31. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. That is, keep alert. Stay alert. Keep your eyes peeled. These are two very defensive commands, aren't they? Two very defensive commands. Why this focus on defense? 
Because Paul sees threats. He sees two key threats. And they're both serious. And they're sandwiched between these two commands. If you look at the text, it says, command, threat, threat, command. So the two threats inside, it's what their defense is designed to protect against. First, verse 29, the first threat is savage wolves will come in among you. Okay, savage wolves coming in from the outside. Now, I do not think there is actually a lupine threat in view here. I, I don't think it's that a full moon is coming and there's howls and the patter of paws. He's, he's keeping the metaphor of shepherding that he's been using going. So one of the key dangers for a shepherd is that somebody wants to eat your sheep. Uh, a wolf wants to eat them, lamb chops supper. And what he means is there's going to be this hostile attack on God's people coming from outside the church. Perhaps it's a physical attack. Maybe it's some of these forms of persecution that you see lots of in these early years. But more likely, I think he's drawing on Jesus' phrasing. Jesus used a very similar phrase. He says, ferocious wolves are going to come in Matthew 7.15. He says, ferocious wolves. And he's describing there false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inside they're ferocious wolves. False prophets masquerading as sheep, but bringing lies and false teaching into the church with disastrous consequences. Paul here says these ferocious wolves are not going to spare the flock. They're going to destroy it. They're going to take people out. So an outside threat, false teachers coming from the outside. But the second one, I think, would have been far more disturbing to those listening to Paul. And I think it should be the same still today. Verse 30 The other threat is that men will arise from among your own number. From from within these elders he's gathered, these guys he's summoned, right, from miles and miles away. He says, come on, come and meet me from uh, Ephesus to Miletus. About 30 miles as the crow flies, much longer. It may have taken them days to get to him. They're committed people, serious people, people he's taught for three years, people he's shared his life with. He says, from among your own number, men will arise who will distort the truth. False teaching from the inside is the second big threat we've got here. Three years with these guys, and it's been pretty intense. Lots of teaching, but still he thinks. Actually, it's worse than that. He knows. Do you see that in verse 29? He says, I know after I leave. He knows some of them are going to go off the rails, that they're going to distort the truth, that they're going to draw a following after themselves rather than a following after Jesus. Now, if you're a a leader today, if you're an elder here today, this, this should be something that would worry you. But if you're a leader in any capacity, this should give you chills, the idea that you could be somebody who would twist the truth. And why would you twist it? Simply to get for yourself a following. This lure of power and influence and significance is so powerful that it could lead us to twist the truth. Two threats, okay? False teachers outside, false teachers inside. Two commands, both defensive, keep watch and, and be on your guard. But... Here's what I want us to think about mostly tonight. What does this mean practically? What did he actually want them to do? How are they to keep watch? How should they be on their guard? Are they meant to take turns staying up all night? Is that, is that the plan? Are they meant to you know, have their eyes peeled and look this way and that and keep the lights bright? Is Obviously not. How will they know whether it is a 
cute fluffy lamb coming to join them or actually just a disguised wolf as Jesus himself says they're going to be in sheep's clothing how, how are they going to know when their own teaching has gone skewy and they're just trying to lead people after themselves rather than Jesus well right about here I'd be expecting Paul to whip out something like this he just whip out a nice big fat this uh, a systematic theology this is a, a great orderly summary of what it is Christians believe right you want to know, you want to know um, what should we think about circumcision? Well, I got a whole chapter for you on that here. Everything you need to know about circumcision. You want to know, you want to know about the end? I've got a nice, huge section here on what's going to happen at the end. You want to know how the church should run? I got some answers for you here. You, you would have thought he would have whipped out a massive book. Great resource when you've got questions. Are these guys sheep or wolves? Is my, is my teaching still sound or not? I don't know. Let me see. seems like a great way to defend against false teaching, doesn't it? To lay out a standard of truth. Paul maybe could have composed a quick creed right about here, like we sang earlier in the service. If he was clever, he might put it to music so people could remember it. He might, he might, you know, right about now he was writing a letter to the church in Rome. And a lot of people think his letter to the church in Rome is a pretty fantastic summary of orthodox doctrine. Maybe you could have just had somebody run off a copy and hand them that instead. It's like, here you go, guys, just to keep you on the straight and narrow. Here's the letter to the Romans. tells you what you need to know. Check yourself against this. It's not what he does. In fact, there is some doctrine in this last speech that he makes. There is some. But really, it's a surprisingly small amount of the speech in total what I want you to see I want you to see tonight is that what Paul presents the Ephesian elders with as he's leaving what he presents them with is himself what he presents them with as a guide when they're faced by these dangers from outside and inside when they urgently need to be watchful and know what's straight and true what he presents is himself more than an education He delivers them an example when he's leaving for good. Look at his very first words. Verse 18. What does he start with? You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. You know how I lived. He doesn't start with doctrine. He starts with practice, with his practice. He breaks it down and he tells them what it was like for him. I served the Lord, he says, with great humility with tears even though I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews humility tears and testing that's what my life looked like he says and this pattern of drawing on himself as an example that carries on he doesn't just point them to what his life looked like back then he points them to what it looks like right now verse 22 in the original starts with and now behold and now see look look he says He says, I'm going to Jerusalem with some serious uncertainty. But I know there's trouble ahead. I know there's trouble ahead for me. Prison and hardship specifically, perhaps worse. Then after he gives these two commands, two warnings, he comes back to his own example again. Look down at verse 31. He says, remember for three years. 
I never stopped warning each of you night and day. Remember what I did when I was with you. He's pointing again to how he lived. And then once more, verse 34, he's back to the same thing. You yourselves know that my hands, these hands of mine have supplied my own needs. And he goes on to make it clear. He did this as an example to them, an example for them. He says, in everything I did, I showed you. By this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. In everything I did, I showed you. Ever heard that show, don't tell? Big thread of this speech again and again is Paul presenting his own life as an example to his friends. How he, how he lived among them, how he taught them, how he worked. And, and how he expects his life to look going forwards. Why does he do this? Why is this going to help them keep watch and be on their guard? How is it going to guard them against false teaching? As I've reflected on this passage this week and prayed about it and thought, I, I think he's trying to imprint on their minds a picture of what real Christianity, real following of Jesus actually looks like in practice. Because that's the best way he can see of safeguarding them. He's pointing them to a model of what a faithful Christian life actually looks like. And this pattern is what they're to be testing things against. I was thinking about how to consider this idea. Imagine the Scottish government is thinking about introducing a 99p coin because they'd be awfully handy when everything costs 3.99. They're introducing a 99p coin. Now, one way they could go about this, preparing shopkeepers, they could say, 99p coin coming, going to have eight sides, um, coppery around the edge, shiny in the middle, weighs about 45 grams. Could do it. Could do it like that. The other way they could do it is give you one. Hold it in your hand, run your finger across it, feel the texture, turn it over, feel the weight. See how much richer an actual experience of the coin is. And then can you imagine maybe some of how that applies to a life lived, a real person. How you could sense the strength of their conviction the depth of their emotions, the sincerity of their concerns, their real humility. See them living out what they say they believe. That's what I think is going on here. I think the the best defense against the fake, fake teachers from outside, fake teachers from inside, is to have the real thing in their hands. Paul says, you know me. You see me. You get me. This is what it looks like. Now, Paul draws attention to lots of aspects of his life in these verses. We don't have time to touch on them all tonight. Um, Two, I think, he pushes in particular. First, do you see how difficult his life looks in this text? You really couldn't describe this as plain sailing. Verse 19, he says, well, you know how I lived. It was with tears. I was severely tested. That's how it was. How's it going to be, Paul? I know that prison and hardships are ahead. It's not so good. Verse 31, how was it when you were with us? More tears. Verse 35, how was it when you were with us? Hard work. It's not all just joyful simplicity and ease. It's not all just sorted, uh, just going to work out fine, is it? It's not always with a smile on his face. Everything just slots together, no anxiety. Everything's clear. It's not like that. 
Can you imagine someone trying to sell a Christianity that looks different to the one Paul is picturing here? Can you imagine them selling you a Christianity in which believing in Jesus, what it does is it makes you healthy and happy. It makes the circumstances of your life organized to sort everything out for you so it's going to be easy and straightforward. You're going to know how it's going to turn out. Can you imagine somebody trying to sell you a Christianity like that? Has someone tried to sell you a Christianity like that? There are certainly people out there selling you a Christianity that looks like that. But if that's what it's like, surely somebody should tell Paul. Should walk up to him and say, you don't need to be sad. Stop with all this weeping and hard work. You know, just need more faith, Paul, and it's going to work out okay for you. Somebody should have told him. But that's not what Jesus offers us. It's not what Jesus ever offered us. He offers us free overwhelming grace peace with God transforming power of the Holy Spirit at work within us these are remarkable vast things huge and life changing but he doesn't offer us an easy life how could anyone get that idea he doesn't offer us a comfortable life he doesn't offer us a straightforward life anyone, anyone doubt that well Read a gospel, read one of the stories of Jesus and see what he says about the lives of those who follow him. Paul's real, his honest example is going to defend his friends from a fake Christianity that tells them it's going to be easy, it's going to be plain sailing, it's going to be happy, it's going to be straightforward. It shows them Christian life is difficult. It's the best It's the very best life. It's the only way to real life. But it's difficult for all that. In the end, it might cost him his life like it did for most of Jesus' first followers. This should be tremendously freeing for us. If we feel like the only way we can commend our faith to others around us is to show them that it sorted everything out in our lives, that now we're just blissfully happy every day, Everything just works and it's easy and straightforward. We've got no more problems. We're going to kill ourselves trying to pretend that's what it's done. And, and we're selling them a fake with it. Instead, we can be real. It's freeing to be real about this. Yeah, this is hard. Yeah, there are days when I struggle. Yes, there are days when I struggle. I'm not always filled with joy. Seriously, I'm not always filled with joy. It leads me into stuff I, I really didn't want to do. That's how it was for Paul. Were, were you expecting something different? I think there's, there's one thread that gets a lot of emphasis in his example here. I think the, the other thread he plays very strong is that the message of the gospel at his heart is very simple and that it's all public. There's no... Secrets for an inner core. There's no advanced class that you graduate to later where you finally discover the real secrets. Look with me at verse 20 here. You know, I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. He says, you know I wasn't keeping any secrets from you. I haven't hesitated from teaching 
anything to you. There was nothing I held back for later, no second level for the events. I taught the same thing in public as I did in your homes. I taught the same thing to Jews as I did to Gentiles. One message, repentance and faith. And in verse 27, he makes a very similar point. He says, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. There was nothing I left out, nothing I held back. There was no secret I thought was too difficult for you as beginner padwans. And you, know, you can later on graduate to this greater understanding. He's laid it all out. All in the public sphere. Do you see how simply he can present the message of Christianity at its core? There in verse 21. They must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Repentance, faith. So, repentance, I guess, is a bit of an unusual word there out on the street today but the meaning is simple it's just about a change of direction it's about turning around it's a a change of mind that leads all the way into a change of behavior so if you're on the train to Glasgow say you might be sorry that you got on the train not saying anything about Glasgow but just hypothetically if you're on a train to Glasgow you might feel sorry that you got on that train Um, you might regret the choice that you have made to board that train and as it trundles further west you might be sorry and regret that you have boarded this train. But neither sorrow nor regret is repentance. Repentance is when you get off the train before the destination and get on one heading back the other way. It's a change of mind leading to a change of direction. So repentance, okay, changing your mind about God and changing your behavior to head in his direction. Then the other half of Paul's description was faith. The other side of the coin is faith. In the Lord Jesus. And what's faith? I think today we can sometimes get a little bit sliced about this because well, the Collins English Dictionary tells us faith is strong or unshakable belief in something. It says especially without proof or evidence. Especially, you know, when it's just like blind faith. But the, the original word doesn't have that sense of lacking evidence. It doesn't talk about faith being in spite of evidence or an opposite to evidence. It's just choosing to put your trust in something like choosing to put your trust in the police or choosing to put your trust in a plane that the wings aren't going to fall off, that oddly this hundred tons of metal can fly. Or here, faith in Jesus, simply choosing to put your trust in him, that he is the Lord. So repentance and faith is the message Paul teaches. It's a simple message. It's a public message. There's no additional secrets. There's no masterclass required. There's no extras hidden at the back. Same message we teach today. Want to come to Jesus? Repent. Turn around. Faith. Put your trust in Jesus. Nothing more. Nothing less. I think Paul's emphasizing the simplicity and the publicity of his message to defend against false teaching that says there's actually something more There's more required than just repentance and faith. Do you remember we read Ezekiel 3 earlier in the service? The reference he makes in verse 26 is he says, I'm going to be innocent of your blood. Points back to the sense of, is he saying everything God has told him to say? Is he declaring everything he's meant to declare 
He's alluding to that. He's saying, I'm innocent because I have said it all. I haven't held anything back. So two things he emphasizes. The Christian life isn't easy. Let's be real about that. And our faith, at its core, is simple and public. Now there's a whole lot more of his life example shown in these verses. There's a great set of things to read and think about what it tells us. But I want to bring us back to where we started. How can this help us go the distance? How can this help us persevere? How can it help us stay on the path of following Jesus and not fall off to the one side or be dragged away to the other? I think there's something really practical here because just like Paul has taught these church leaders for years, but in the end he puts himself forward as an example. I think as we look to stay on the right path in our Christian lives, we can benefit not just by being taught and learning stuff, not just by knowing our stuff, but also by considering others who are examples of what it looks like to do this for real. Following Jesus for their whole life, following Jesus with their whole life. Now we can do that. We can do that with biographies, certainly. But this is a church where we're blessed to have many great real life examples to look at as well. Warm bodies we can learn from. We can use as pictures as what it is to repent and believe. What is it to wholeheartedly follow Jesus through difficulty, whatever the cost? People who could say, just like Paul does, follow me as I follow Jesus. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Though I imagine few would dare to say that themselves. There are examples. These examples around us in the church make it tangible. We can touch. We can see. We can feel. Experience what it really looks like to follow Jesus and not just read about it. You know how I lived, he says. In everything I did, I showed you, he says. And there are people here who can be that example to you. Let me add one more thought to that as we close. Every one of you who'd call yourself a Christian here tonight, you could be this sort of example to others as well. You're not a finished work. Perhaps you're barely a started work but you can still be an example to others. Paul writes later to Timothy, one of the guys who hangs around with him a lot on lots of his different journeys. A younger co-worker, he says to Timothy, set an example. But Timothy's not finished. Timothy's a work in progress. But he says he's to be an example in this. An example in his progress. 1 Timothy 4.15, be an example to the believers in your progress. So maybe you couldn't imagine being an example of what it looks like to be lifelong devoted to Jesus yet. Maybe you couldn't be that example. But you could be an example of what it looks like to change direction radically. You could be an example of what it looks like when you decide to stop coasting and take it up a level. Many of you are examples like this. You make tangible the truth that God still radically changes lives. And you too, through your examples, can encourage others to persevere in their faith or even to start their faith journey. 
we're going to sing together in response. And then after we sing, I'm going to uh, invite us to explore together just really briefly how, a little bit more about how we might practically benefit from each other's examples. Just a few minutes. Um, but first, we're going to